Hey, Senda. Hey, Phil. Hey, Senda and Phil. Eli Kurtz. (laughs) Do you want to talk about maps and games? And welcome to another episode of Panda's Talking Games. I'm one of your hosts, Phil. And I am your other host, Senda. And tonight we have an awesome guest, Eli Kurtz. Eli, can you let us know why you are the fantastic guest that we have on tonight, like you're on Talking Tabletop? Yeah, so, first of all, glad to be here. Second of all, I'm here for two reasons. First, I'm a huge map geek. In fact... I am head of theoretical cartography at the Mythic Gazetteer. I love plausible geography. I love functional architecture and city planning. I love visual storytelling with maps, all that jazz. Uh, And then second, I've got a Kickstarter going on right now, the Blackwood, which is a fantasy setting for Savage Worlds. Yeah, let's take a moment and talk about the Blackwood. Can you tell us like what, what it is? Tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter? Etc. Absolutely. So uh, the Blackwood in a nutshell is a fantasy setting inspired by folklore and high-flying martial arts action. It's, uh, yeah, (laughs) it holds a special place in my heart. It's like, it's Grimm's Tales and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's uh, Kung Fu Hustle and Brotherhood of the Wolf. Uh, You are errants, a class of wandering adventurers who search a landscape of deadly beauty for a way to save the settled folk of the Elder Kingdom from ruin. Instead of having like, you know, Tolkien lore, tropaic stuff like that, it's got a lot of uh, Grimm's Tales. Like you, there are elves in the setting, but they're Rumpelstiltskin instead of Legolas. They're going to turn you inside out and cook you into a stew instead of, you know, dancing on the snowtop and making fun of dwarves. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a lot of high flying martial arts type stuff. Uh, and the world of Jiang Hu from Wuxia Stories is present in the social structure of the world. You've got nobility that doesn't care, and you've got common folk who are hurting, and in between them, you've got this class of errants, right? And they go out, and they're free to disobey some of the laws for the sake of making the kingdom better. That sounds awesome. It's pretty fun. We uh, And the Kickstarter is doing really well so far. As of recording, we are 92% funded, and we've got seven days left to go, so I'm feeling pretty positive about it. And uh, on the Kickstarter, there are a lot of interviews and, and actual plays and things like that. So if anybody's interested, definitely head over there and check that out. Yeah, we will definitely have a link to that in the show notes. And you won't have a lot of time left when you hear this, you guys. So if it sounds interesting, then head on over like ASAP. Yeah, like pull your car over, <coughs> take out your phone uh-huh. just, and, and start typing. Follow yeah. the link. Do not do <laughs> it while you're driving. It's not that important. <laughs> Correct. Just pull over. Yeah, just... Safety first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Don't care where you are. Okay. So tonight, Eli, we're having you on actually to talk to us about the use of maps and games because you are such an awesome map type person. Specifically, we thought we'd talk about what information is important to convey in one shots versus campaigns and how each format affects the time and energy that you put into a particular map. So 
Before we get into that, because this is Pandas Talking Games, and my co-host is Phil Vecchione. Phil, what can you tell us about maps? Would you like to lay a definition on me? Yeah, I, you know, I, I next up, I want like music for the definition part. Are you going to make me find definition music? Definition music. Put that on the checklist for show improvements uh... for next season. <laughs> So maps, I mean, obviously seem a bit self-explanatory, but I think we can put a few boundaries and terms around this. Um, so, at, at, you know, it's most dictionary of definitions. A map is a graphic representation of an area of land or sea showing physical features, city, roads, etc. Maps can have a few different parameters when we're talking about them, especially when we're talking about them in role-playing games. So uh, size, how big is this map? Is it a single page? Is it a poster? Is it a battle map? Uh, what's the scale? So what's the size um, on the map compared to real world sizes? So, you know, if it's a battle map, are these, you know, are these five foot squares? If it's, you know, if it's a world map, is it, you know, how many miles to an inch? That kind of thing. Our detail level. Are we looking at super realistic? Uh, are we looking at kind of basic? Are we looking at abstract types of maps? Uh, what's our subject? So, are we talking about, are we looking at uh, land masses? Like we're looking at a, ca- a campaign world. Are we talking about a dungeon? Because that's um, for a lot of us old timers. That's the first maps that we, uh, that we ever saw when we first got into the hobby. But we can, always, we can get all the way down to the room level. So a lot of adventures now, um, especially if you're looking at like 5e and Pathfinder, have, you know, room maps. Because for tactical purposes, they actually lay out, you know, the way a room is put together. And then our style. I mean, the most common is overhead, right? We're traditionally used to looking straight down at our map, but we have isometric maps that, you know, kind of have that side cutaway thing for dungeons. You don't see them too often, but when you do, they're kind of really cool looking. I also assume they're real pain to put together. But anyway, we have freeform maps, so things that are kind of hand-drawn. We have hex maps or squares. And in some cases, you know, we use hex for one thing and squares for another. Uh, In the terms of role-playing games, there are plenty of professionally made maps and professional cartographers. Just to name a few, Mark Richardson, friend of the show, uh, who um, is doing the uh, Seventh Sea maps. Um, Are we cheating on Mark Richardson right now? A little bit. A little bit. We love you, Mark. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Another great cartographer is uh, Christopher West, who did the uh, maps for uh, Numenera. The Ninth World maps are really quite a uh, quite a thing to see. But even without being professional cartographers, we can absolutely make our own maps for games. Um, so we can hand draw them, and we can hand draw them for our own internal reference. Uh, I do this a lot for games where it's theater of the mind. I might draw myself a little map that I don't intend to show to anyone, but it just kind of has it for me in my notes so I can describe it. We can have hand-drawn maps that we share with everyone. And we can have software-created maps. So we can use something like Photoshop, or we can use Campaign Cartographer, or we can use something like Hex Mapper to do like an outdoor hex map. Uh, so, Senda, what do maps actually get us in RPGs? Like, why have them in the first place? Well, I have to say something really quickly first about Photoshop. Yeah. Because I discovered this. There are some fantastic free map brushes for Photoshop that you can just use <laughs> to make really nice maps mm-hmm. for your RPG without spending a lot of time on it. Anyway. Yeah. Before I started um, doing maps professionally, I used a brush set from a, a person on DeviantArt called Star Raven. It's a sketchy cartography brushes, and those things are yeah. superb. Just there's some excellent brushes out there. I had a whole collection going for a while. Uh-huh. So maps in terms of RPGs. 
like any other image that you would use in an RPG when you're running a game, it is worth a thousand words because it can be a lot easier to just put it down and say, here's what's going on. And everybody immediately knows. Nobody's misinterpreting or misunderstanding left from right or all of those things that can happen when you're just trying to describe something. So there's a lot of information that just gets laid out without us actually having to say anything. And then depending on how much effort you put into it, it can actually help set the tone of the game as well. So if you are laying out something like, you know, you've, you've hand drawn a map and you've dipped it in tea stain and it looks fantastic and it's a part of a thing that you just found, that's a very different game sense than if you have something printed out and it's super shiny and very crisp and clear and looks very digital or something like that. So you can actually set the tone of the game with that. It's part of, you know, kind of the tools that you can do. It is an artifact of the game that can persist after the game. And I find that to be especially true in games where you create the map as you go or when I slap something down on the table and I like really quickly draw the map and I, I sometimes I hang on to those because they're cool. Most of the time, games use maps in a really informational way where you're just trying to get everyone on the same page in the, in the fastest, easiest way possible. But sometimes they can be used to drive games as a mechanic, like in The Quiet Year, which is a game that I really like, even when spaceships invade my quiet um, sheep farming village. Not even when, but because. <laughs> because, <laughs> because spaceships, spaceships. And, and terrible nuclear weapons <laughs> buried in the... Anyway, moving right <laughs> along. Um, so some examples of places that you will generally find maps is in stuff like setting books. They'll usually have a map in a setting book because we're trying to give you a sense of that particular setting and you need some general geography um, to go with that. Or if you're picking up a pre-made adventure module or something like that, then you will generally have some kind of map that goes with that of the dungeon and loosely used term to mean a place that you would explore or a room, a lair, a city, whatever that is. So it could be the streets of Avalon. It could be, you know, the red dragon's lair. So you can also make your own maps during the game itself. And sometimes that means sort of the classic battle map with markers. So you, you've, lay down your your dry erase squares and you pull out those markers and you start mapping it and then you put your figures on um and i have played a lot of pathfinder in my life it could be a zone map from fate so that's a lot it's a little bit looser or you can make it as part of gameplay with something again like the quiet year so with my help we're going to talk about maps in the panda's favorite way Senda and I are going to discuss maps in one-shot games and then phil and i are going to discuss maps in a campaign so Eli, with time being limited in a one shot, like it is, because like I like to say, it's temporary. What does using a map do for you in terms of conserving time if you are playing a one shot? Yeah, well, first of all, since I always make my own maps, I always divide the time into two segments. So the first time is the time it's going to save me while I'm playing the actual adventure. But the other time is the time it's going to take me to actually prepare this map, you know, and like if you're going on to drive through RPG and printing off a map from somebody or if you're running online and you just load the map up, it doesn't take you as long to do that. But for one shots, I definitely consider, you know, how many times am I going to be running this? Where am I going to be running it? How much time should I invest in this map? Is it something that I'm playing at home with friends? Is it something that I'm playing at a con? That sort of thing. But the real meat of the question is during gameplay, right? And so the thing that I think maps are most useful for in one-shots is being able to bring all of these basic strangers into the world of the game. 
And it doesn't matter if that is an entire planet or even like a solar system or a galaxy, or if it's just the one room they're going to spend time in as the characters in this adventure, you know. No matter what, the map is the first visual cue that gives you a sense of place. And even if you're running Theater of the Mind, because I usually run Theater of the Mind, I still like to have a map down in front of me because it's helpful for people to see what's going on. Not only when you're setting the scene, but also during the scene, especially during combat rounds with crunchier systems, having a map makes it a lot easier to recap what's happened. And you can be like, oh yeah, you were over here, and then you went over here and you did this and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So it's a quick way to get everybody on the same page in terms of knowing where everything is. Absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, it's like that's the point of a map is to know where things what? are. What? <laughs> to place yourself <laughs> in space? <laughs> so in terms of what kind of map to create for any given game, based on some of those factors that Phil defined earlier, what are your favorite things that you like to keep in mind when you're actually making a map? So scale is the first consideration I have when making a map or using a map for a one shot, right? It's a different situation with campaigns, which we'll get into, but for a one shot, the chance like the chances that I need an entire world map are so incredibly slim. The only time I can really think I would use it is if I was doing some sort of Indiana Jones style cross country trip. But even then, I mean I might just do that theater of the mind and invoke that orally you know like say narratively it's the same thing as indiana jones you can see the red ticker thing going across the map and you're good to go so yeah scale is definitely a consideration how much space do i need to represent for the purposes of this one shot and like i said a lot of the times it's just one room but it could be you know a building or a block or even an entire town kind of depends on the time scale of your game how much how much people can reasonably expect to move around yeah, so that's, pro- that's the first consideration for sure. The size and detail, like I said earlier, can vary based on the format of the game. So, for example, if I'm planning for a long time to run a con game, the map I use is going to be a lot prettier than when my friends text me this afternoon and they're like, hey, let's play a game tonight. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me just see what I can throw together. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and in those cases, it's usually I have a, a bunch of notebooks that are just blank pages and I'll draw something really quick on there. But yeah, I, I definitely prefer to have a little more time and be able to do more presentation. But yeah, and for me, as far as maps go in one shots, the GM preference weighs more heavily than the player preference when we're talking about using like a hex grid or going gridless or something like that. Because the GM is preparing so much of the session already, I think it's okay for the GM to decide in this context we are not going to be using a battle map, or we are absolutely going to be using a battle map, and here are some minis that you can use. So that that can vary a lot based on the nature of the game you're running. But you'll notice throughout this whole thing, what I'm really saying is that the GM's load is important as a consideration when you're using a map or when you're creating a map, and I think a good map will lighten the load for the GM every time. So like, for example, you know, combat encounters, it's good to have a map that has evocative terrain on it. It's not just a blank square on a page and that's your market square. It's got storefronts and it's got stalls and it's got boxes stacked up in different places or like a a scaffold erected somewhere. Because this is really helpful for, like I said earlier, 
pointing to someone and saying like, I want to go and do this thing on this object instead of having to imagine it whole cloth. Sure. So just like off the cuff, do you sometimes run without any maps at all and then sometimes run with really elaborate maps and just run the scale between those two? Or do you like always like to have something on the table? Yeah, so um, I I usually run games in the Blackwood. Uh, I've been doing playtests and like friend games in that for a long time now. And I have a big like uh, poster size map that I'll put down on the table regardless of whether or not we are using encounter maps or anything like that. And it's just table dressing at that point. But if I'm running, you know, a, a game in another system or if I'm running a different setting or something like that, I like to have some basic thing that I can show people for a visual aid, but it's not necessarily going to happen every time. Sometimes it's just easier if a game has no map, especially some of the indie games where space is almost a secondary consideration to character. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of what I was thinking about. Yeah. Um, so having having talked about kind of using them and not using them, is there a particular map that you're most proud of? Like, what's your favorite map that you've ever used for a one shot? Yeah, so it was a Blackwood playtest that I did. And the adventure was eventually left on the cutting room floor. But the map was super cool. It was on one of the uh, like the faux leather grid map things, you know, the, the wet erase scrolls mm-hmm. or whatever you yeah. want to call them and um it, it it struck a really cool balance for me between a map that exists here in our real world and something that could have conceivably come from the world of the game we're playing because the coloring it wasn't super detailed it was i had like black outlines for a lot of things and then like the tree line around the edge of the map i went through and i added just some quick green details in the tree line i did the same thing for the shoreline on the river that went through there and so it was really subtle, but it was a nice balance between detail and abstract representation. And then geeking out a little bit about city planning. So I could talk for <laughs> days about this stuff, right? <laughs> and it's important that a, that a settlement flows in a logical way, right? It, it's important that the, like the, the nobility or whoever's in charge or most prestigious in your community is probably going to want to have a prominent place in the settlement. And so in this case, they were up on this rocky plateau and everybody else was kind of down on the shore in the, in the muck down beneath them. And there was a logical progression of like, well, we need to have farmland here and that sort of thing. And it was like, oh, well, the hill curves this way. So our buildings are going to have to curve the same way. And in this case, all the ingredients just came together and it was uh, it was like looking at a real place almost. I just, I loved it so much. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you still have that map. Do you still have it? it? I actually kept it for a long time, so long that when I eventually tried to get rid of it, it was pretty much permanently imprinted on this scroll. So <laughs> I've done that before too. So <laughs> it's half in my heart have it- and half in the real world, right. but I do have pictures of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. As long as you have pictures. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, so now that we've talked about one-shot maps, mm-hmm. Phil and Eli are going to talk about the role of maps in campaigns, but we're going to do a crazy different thing this week and have a quick message from our sponsors right here. Our sponsor this week is Bag Thulu. So this is a Cthulhu dice bag, and it's awesomely evil. It's got wings and tentacles and Cthulhu's bulbous head, which tips back to hold dice like the watery tomb of Rilia. Now let's talk about the stats. So, uh-huh. Phil, how tall is it? Uh, Cthulhu is 80 feet tall. No, man, the bag. 
Oh, um, uh, I think it's, it's it's eight inches tall. Yeah, it's eight inches tall. So what about the wingspan? How how big are the wings? Oh, um, Cthulhu's wingspan's like a triple seven, man. It's huge. Really? Oh, the bag. The bag is um ten and a half inch wingspan. That is correct. Yes. Now, what's the capacity? How many? How much can it hold? All the hope of humanity. No, man, the dice bag. Oh, a hundred standard dice. Yes, it can hold a hundred standard dice. Yes. What is it made out of? The bag. The bag. What is the bag made out of? Yes. Um, uh, lush or micro fleece. Um, or, and, uh, non-Euclidean polyfill stuffing. It's just polyfill stuffing, man. No, I mean, it's non-Euclidean polyfill stuffing. Totally non-Euclidean. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and don't forget the evil. Rumors are every bag has a chunk of the Necronomicon inside it. Really? Uh, I don't know. I can't back that up. Oh, okay. Well, um, so the manufactured bag, Thulu, that's the green one if you go to the Kickstarter. It's $31 US. Uh, this product is also Canada shipping friendly. Shipping to the US is $12. Uh, shipping to Canada is $16 Canadian, so they're about comparable. Yeah. Is it me? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Bob was editing the damn copy text while, I'm, while you're in it. What? Oh, man. Oh, God. So it's about the mini Cthulhu, because there's a mini Cthulhu. Yeah, don't worry. I'll just do my line. You're going to edit this. For no, me. I'm not. Oh, awesome. This is awesome. Good job, Bob. Don't edit the copy while we're don't reading it. Don't blame me, Ben. <laughs> you, listen, you also can get mini Thulu. Mini Thulu. So it's like made of the same stuff. Uh-huh. It's a plush toy made from the same stuff as the dice bag with many attachment points. That's right. You can hang your plushy evil off your gear. Yes. Or your hair if, if, you, if you're so inclined. Uh, I'm just saying Mini Thulu could be on one of my bags. It could, Mini Thulu could be on one of your bags. I'm digging that. I'm digging that hardcore. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, for a few dollars more, you can get your bag Thulu in another color. That's true. There's 20 colors to choose from, including the color out of space. Serious? Right. Really? Uh, no, not really. Oh. Man, so the Necronomicon and Color Space, but you can't back that up. I got, I got nothing. It's, that's unfortunate. Now, listen, there is a bigger bag, Thulu, that holds 250 dice. Because it couldn't hold more than the entire hope of humanity, right? Right. It had to be bigger. Um, it also comes in 20 colors, handmade, um, and it can have customizable things like it could wear a top hat or be reading the Necromonicon. Necromonicon? Whatever. It's the Necronomicon. I said, I said your words. <laughs> Misdirected Mark, I, words scramble. I do have a question, though. Yes? Is the top hat evil? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's seriously evil, plushy evil indeed. Is it just because it's on Cthulhu's head? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I think it classes up Cthulhu. <laughs> is it an evil hat? Is it an evil oh. hat? No. That's no, copyright that's, infringement. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's copyright, copyright infringement. Don't that's do too bad. that. I mean, that's trademark that's, infringement. That's, that's true. That's true. Not an evil hat. It's a, yeah. it's a top hat. It's classy. It's classy Cthulhu. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Drinks tea, says nice things, <laughs> consumes humanity. Oh, man. So I hear they have the, the first stretch goal. What is their first stretch goal? Purple bag Thulu. Yeah, so it's a manufactured version of that. So uh-huh. you can get the cheaper one, like the green one, but in yep. purple. Yep. Sweet. So that's bag Thulu. Check it out on Kickstarter. Just go to Kickstarter and search for bag Thulu. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. Or go to the Dreamlands. So Eli... Let's now settle into a campaign where uh, we have more time to do things, more time for stories to tell. And if time is on our side, which is something we love to say here at... uh, Time is on on my my side. side. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) I mean, we can't... Yeah, we can't really get away from that. So, sorry. No, we can't. Sorry. with, With time on our side, what then is the role of a map in a campaign? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Time is the deciding factor in a campaign. And I think what that means is that it's not just what a map can do for a campaign, it's what multiple maps can do for a campaign. 
Um, and I like to have, like I mentioned, you know, I've got the big Blackwood map that I lay out on the table as table dressing, if nothing else. But it kind of acts for me as a campaign menu, you know, in the same way that every video game has a title screen. This is sort of the title screen of my campaign. And I can say, okay, here's where we're going to be this time. Or someone can say, I want to start over here. And so that, to me, is the real benefit of a world map. It shows people the scope of possibility within the game. Uh, And that means, you know, that if you're going to run a campaign, you should choose that your largest scale map should be no larger than the land you're comfortable exploring. If you're only comfortable exploring a nation, don't use an entire planet because people see a spot on the map and they want to go there. It's a human thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but like I said, you know, multiple maps are possible on the campaign scale. Even with a one-shot, you might get two maps, three if you're feeling really ambitious, but with a campaign, I think it's okay to do one or two maps per session, and that can build up to having dozens of maps, uh, depending on how long your campaign runs. So you want to have an idea of the scope of your world, but you also need to realize that you have the freedom to use different maps for different things. You don't have to represent everything on just one or two maps this time around. Uh, And that comes in real handy for customizing moments visually in the game. Oh, I I love what you said about campaign menu. Um, I remember... So I'm going to date myself here because I'm old. Back when TSR released Boot Hill, and they did this with Gamma World as well. So I don't want I, I don't want the Grognars to to yell at me. Um, but I'm just gonna but I'm just gonna <laughs> talk about it from Boot Hill. So Boot Hill was their Western game, and it came with this it came with this hex map, and it was like this thick paper, and it had no details on it. It it had uh, blank hexes it had hexes for mountains and hexes for water and then in the book they give you they gave you like a list of names of towns and names of rivers and ranches and things like that and part of like putting the game together was like you would sit as the gm and like fill in the map and it was like your western landscape it was like it wasn't dictated to you like you decided like where this mesa was and like where this town was located and you could draw you know you could actually draw in the roads and stuff like that it was so it was so cool but when it was done yeah it was it was a menu because there were just kind of like all these cool things like scattered around the map and that's how like you know we would sit you know poke at them and be like well what's going on you know like what's going on in Black Mesa? Like, let's go find out. Yeah. And you know, the thing about that too, is that it's not only a representation of the scope of your world at that point, but it's also literally a map of your story so far. If you get to add all the details yourself, that's such a cool idea. That's, that's some, that's some quiet year level stuff. That's really, I, I think I want to do that. <laughs> Thanks for the idea. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean that. I mean, it comes back from like that's like a 1982 game, but I honestly don't remember having seen it in too many other things. Yeah. um, Well, after that, it takes a lot of trust on behalf of a world builder to say, "I'm leaving this blank, and you can fill it in as much as you want." And the reality is, of course, you know, every table is going to make a setting their own. That's totally unavoidable. But to actually say. I'm giving you a a visual representation, but I'm only filling in about 10% of it and you get to do the rest. That's, uh, that's a lot of trust. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I, I know that Christopher West, when he did the Ninth World maps, that there are um, things on the map that are labeled, but there are no references for them in the books. There's just like interesting little things that he like dropped in the world mm-hmm. and then just left them there so that you can't look them up. Like you have to just come up with what you want them to be. Yeah. So one of my first fascinations with maps was when I was, I don't know, like five and I had just moved to the town that I would live in for most of my life. And they had one of those cutesy tourist maps that was like almost a caricature of the town and you could see all the buildings and they were all cartoonish and they had like, Oh, you know, here's a big toothbrush for the dentist's office and that sort of thing. And those artifacts are the coolest things in maps, the things that tell a story without pointing toward anything in like a corresponding book or anything like that. It's just something like, here's something to spark your imagination. What might be there? I love stuff like that. I agree. So with that idea that we can have multiple maps and we can do different things with them, what are the factors then that are most important when we're talking about campaign maps? One of the things I mentioned during the one-shot section was about how when you're working on a smaller scale, things like city planning or like architecture are important considerations. And on the other hand, I think for campaign level play, it's a lot easier to focus on terrain rather than structures. And in that case, you need to have somewhat of an understanding of plausible geography. Like for every person listening to this, please let me tell you, A river can only ever enter the ocean from one place. If you have it forking and it goes in two places, that's physically impossible. And so unless your world denies the laws of physics, please just have them branch toward the river instead of away from the river. (laughs) The number of maps, like I said, is a pretty big factor as well. And in the same way, so we mentioned the quiet year earlier. And one of the things I love about that is that it is not just a representation of a physical place, but it's also a representation of the things that happen there. Uh, It's almost like a pictograph by the end of it, because you've got symbols that that signify things. And that's the nature of what you need to do when you're only doing these standalone situations. But in a campaign, you can have your world map, and it can have maybe those little artifacts we talked about, but it's not going to be a major feature of the map. It's going to be these little things that you can find, little Easter eggs or something. And then if something is big enough that it needs a substantial symbol on the map, then what you can do instead is just create a whole new map for that thing. So instead of trying to draw the street plan of your capital city on your world map, you just say, here's where the capital city is, and then here's another map that has the streets so that you can adventure here too. So having an idea of what you're trying to represent is really helpful for that level of play on the campaign level. Um, But on the other hand, like I said, you know, it does mean that you need more maps and that needs to be a factor too. Uh, One of the things that I think is really helpful is that genre can be a huge help as you are trying to find or create maps. Because for example, you can find maps of medieval landscapes and things like that, but chances are they're going to be something that's custom made for a role-playing game by somebody because the actual historical maps are they're not they're just not all that suitable for gameplay. They can be, but they're not ideal. But like if you're playing a modern game or if you're playing a futuristic game or something like that, there are a lot. I mean, Google Maps is something you can use. You know, you can just go onto Google Maps and copy and paste a section of it somewhere you're trying to go, and then you've got a settlement or you've got a lonely highway in the wilderness or something like that. So 
even though you do have a little bit more of a responsibility to find different maps and keep people entertained by these new maps that you're introducing, a lot of the work can be done for you depending on what your genre is. Yeah, I uh, I ran a year or two ago. I was running Knights Black Agents for a little while, and um, Google Earth was um, was my ultimate tool. Like I was uh, zooming in and out of Europe and just um, like zooming in and grabbing, like screen capping a section and being like, "Okay, this is the location of you know the you know the um, you know the secret police headquarters and." you know, here are the streets around it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I would just constantly like, just go through, um, zooming in and out of, you know, Google earth, which in and of itself then became like a, a, a problem for GM prep. Cause I would get lost in just kind of wandering through like European cities, like at street level and stuff like that. Yeah. And, I feel but it was your great. pain there. <laughs> it was great. Like I was never short of a map and, uh, I would just sometimes, you know, like sometimes I would just bring it up on a screen. Like I would just, you know, um, hit the coordinates and just have it zoom in and be like, okay, this is where you are right here on the coast. That's so cool. I love that we can do that now with the internet and with Google maps and even like Google earth, uh, because you can switch views and maps and everything. And I did say modern, I, I emphasize modern and futuristic settings, but early modern works really well too, because all of the maps that were made in the 1800s and a lot of the maps that were made in the early 1900s are now like out in the public domain so you don't have to pay for them and you can create like you can print out these beautiful maps of you know london in the 1800s or new york in the 1700s or something like that so yeah there's just a whole lot out there online for free if you know what to look for I have to say one thing about Google Maps, and mm-hmm. it means I'm dragging you guys back to one shots for one second. If you want to see a game that really effectively uses Google Street View as a game mechanic, the last safe house is amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there because we played it on She's a Super Geek. It's super fun and super creepy. Carry on. That's awesome. I'm going to have to. It's called the last safe house. Yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah, it actually uses Google Street View yeah. as the mechanic. Yeah, you wander through Google Street View and and every time you see a thing of this color or there's a person like with the blurred out eyes and stuff like it's it's super cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, you've clearly done one-shot maps. Have you also done maps for your campaigns? And um if so, like what are some of your favorite ones that you've uh you've had a chance to do? I have, yeah. So like I said, you know, if I'm doing a map for a campaign, I, as a GM, I don't like to prep very much. So send a, I'm right there with you on that one. But um, <laughs> I'll yeah. usually, I'll usually try it's to do thing. no more than an hour of prep for like a four hour game or something. And I've streamlined my actual adventure writing down to where that's totally manageable. But I need about an hour to be able to put down a decent encounter map uh, in like one of my notebooks or something. But a lot of the time, if I can't do something in advance like that, then I'll just create a quick sketch in the moment that works somewhat similar to a fate zone map. But it's really just enough to say, like, you know, here's a patio and here's a balcony and, you know, in- invent your own terrain in between there if you want to. Um, but for campaigns, I mean, the the Blackwood map that I keep talking about, the table setting one, 
Uh, that one is definitely one that I would want to have for any Blackwood campaign I'm running. It's this massive thing that's like, I don't know, 30 inches by 30 inches. It's printed on uh, canvas and it's like frayed around the edges and everything. So it's just, it's awesome. And that one is cool too, because it's one of the first digital maps I ever made. But I think maybe my favorite campaign map that I've ever made was the last one that I u- or made with colored pencils. And that was for a game I ran in college that the world was basically the Elder Scrolls with the serial numbers filed off. But I learned so much while I was making that map. I like up in the area where the Nords were living, basically, it was it was the first time I'd ever created an intricate coastline that I really was pleased with. Most of the time, it's just, you know, a straight line or more or less. But this was like fjords and and inland seas and all sorts of stuff. It was so cool. And I also learned a lot about plate tectonics and how weather is affected by ocean and air currents and then also running into mountains and lowlands and things like that. I tried to incorporate all that into the map. So when I look at it, I see not just the world itself, but I also see what I learned while making it. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a special feeling. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That is, and that is way more detail than I think I've ever put into a, uh, into a campaign map. I'm actually like the worst. It's actually a thing I apologize about every time I run a, like a one shot. I'm like, okay, well, you've got me as your GM. Uh, you're not getting very good maps ever. <laughs> like, and uh, unless I have prepped them digitally somehow beforehand, even my abstract maps are really painful. Like I just always apologize. Yeah. Like, it's just well, going to be a thing. And you know, one of the things that I like to do, especially when I'm running games online, I will just try and find some sort of environmental scene. And that makes a fine map too. I mean, in the same sense that you were talking about isometric maps earlier, if you're not doing a grid-based battle, then it's enough to have a picture of a place and to say like, I am at this house in the background, or like I'm at this well in the foreground or something Mm. like that. And uh, that in its own way becomes a map because it's pointing you or it's guiding you through a terrain. Oh, I've never done anything like that before. That's really interesting. Yeah, and especially, you know, like with Roll20, for example, you can create those custom tokens. And most of the time people create top-down tokens, but you can create a front-on token as, just as easily. And then if you marry that with just an environmental scene, then all of a sudden you've got a map with tokens on it. And you can even do something that's vaguely like a grid-based combat system. Oh, it's really interesting. Yeah, give it a oh, shot. I have to go mess around with something like this now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. All right. Well, great. Well, and, and thank you so much for talking about maps and campaigns. And yeah. um, now that we've talked about some of your favorites, um, we're going to move on to the end of the show. So, Senda, where do people reach us on the internet? Well, you can find us on Twitter at Pandas Talk Games. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pandas talk games. You can find us in the Misdirected Mark Google Plus community, or you can drop us an email, panda at misdirectedmark.com. And Eli, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I am all over the internet. My homepage is mythicgazetteer.com, the spelling of which I will relegate to the show notes because turns out it's hard to spell. Um, <laughs> that's not something we're afraid of around here. Is it here. as hard as my Twitter handle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's my homepage. But my favorite haunt is actually on Google Plus, where you can find me under my name, Eli Kurtz. 
I'm also on Facebook. The Mythic Gazetteer has a page there, which is facebook.com slash Mythic Gazetteer. And I'm on DriveThruRPG under Mythic Gazetteer LLC. And last but not least, I am a new presence on Twitter under the handle ZapDynamic, who is our mascot at the Mythic Gazetteer. Very cool. ZapDynamic is easier to spell. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard that's a thing, that you should make Twitter handles that are easy to spell. Blasphemy. I don't believe it, but I've heard it's a thing. <laughs> so, Phil, once someone f- finds any of us on the internet, <laughs> I guess maybe not Eli, what could they do? <laughs> well, once you found us um, on social media, please send us topics for the show. Um, we actually don't come up with our own topics. We rely solely on our listeners to come up with topics. Uh, so please keep sending them. We have a um, pretty healthy backlog of them, but we can always use more and interesting ideas about things that Senda and I can talk about on the show. And Senda, after people have sent us their topics, what is something else they can send us? Something that lets us know what they're doing? Well, you can send us your table selfies. So the next time you are sitting down with a bunch of cool people to play that awesome game, snap a selfie of you and that table of cool people and post it on the social media of your choice and hashtag it table selfie and we will come by and like it because we are the table selfie liking fairies and we like to see what everybody is playing. If you like what we do here or elsewhere on the Misdirected Mark Network, we do have a Patreon campaign. You can reach us at patreon.com slash MMP. Patrons of the show get access to great things like the bonus outtakes from this episode, which I guarantee you <laughs> there are bonus outtakes. <laughs> uh, you get access uh-huh. to the after show, the 15 to 30 minutes at the end of the Misdirected Mark live uh, show where Chris, Phil, and Bob sit around and chat about random stuff. That's usually pretty good. Uh, And then you get access to a whole bunch of other things, bonuses that we put together, parody songs, D&D stuff that the D&D guys throw together, um, as well as access to our Slack Room for Life. And one of the most special things is that Senda and I will butcher your names on the air. (laughs) We seem to be fairly consistent at this, um, but there's a chance. we're terribly sorry. Yeah. So if you would like your name butchered, making it, giving you flashbacks of being back in third grade on the first day of school, by all means, please be a patron and we'll do our best to try not to mangle your name. But who knows? And now, uh, get ready for some more patron shoutouts. At least I, well, I'm going to make you do the first one because I think I know how to pronounce the other ones. <laughs> Jared Rasher. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. <laughs> Rob Abrazado. We you're love, awesome, dude. We love Thank Rob Abrazado. That's such a Cannot cool name. Cannot wait to see you at QCC. Yeah. <laughs> and Rich Howard, who is also phenomenally awesome. Thank you, Rich. He also does, you know, that that little that little podcast, that little whelmed podcast. Send up. If um somebody's already backing the patron campaign or is unable to back the patron campaign, which is perfectly fine, what's another way that doesn't cost anything that tells us that you love us? And it's kind of like a hug for podcasters. You could leave us a rating, a review on iTunes. We really, really love them. I get a little bit hyper about them. I usually start typing in lots of capital letters. And besides just making me hyper and excited, they do also, in fact, help other people find the show. They make us show up in the suggestions for other similar podcasts, and they help us move up the ranks a little bit in that other games category where there are many, many podcasts. So if you like our show and you would like to tell a bunch of strangers to listen to us, we would love... A review. 
Absolutely. We'd appreciate it greatly. Mm -hmm. And now, Eli, show me what kind of maps you have in the Blackwood. This show is a joint production of She's a Super Geek and Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. I'm good. Did it work this time? I have waveforms. There we go. I have some waveforms. How do you even know? How do you even know that you have waveforms? How can you tell yet? Oh, well, I can. <laughs> haven't done a song yet. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I suspect I have waveforms, but we won't know until we test it later. Won't... Bloop. Oh, Fix. damn it. Little, did you bump your mic? Hands on your head. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Panda rules. Bloop. There we go. Because I bonked the. Yes. Whatchamacallum. The thingy with the. <laughs> no, please. By all means, use. Make. <laughs> Two words. Two words. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the uh, word the um, word and circle, and it does that stuff. <laughs> it it's the word. Shut up! You don't even know. I totally vacuumed my lawn this weekend. <laughs> lawn vacuum. <laughs> lawn vacuum. Sounds legit. Sounds legit. <laughs> I think I, I think they have another name for it. I don't think they call it the lawn vacuum. The verbal sieve. That's what it is. <laughs> Shit! <laughs> it sucked up all the grass parts. <laughs> Did it mine spit just them back out though? Too mine. Mine just puts them back in the lawn. Yeah. Oh, mine does not. I have to take the. I have to take the lawn vacuum bag off the back of the lawn vacuum and then empty it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the word you were looking for originally was pop filter. Uh, pop screen. Yeah. I think sometimes pop screen. <laughs> Word circle. I like word, word. circle. It's word my circle microphone works. word circle. Yeah, it keeps the words. It's a circle that the words go through in order yeah. to get to the microphone. It's the vocal colander. <laughs> vocal colander. I like that. That's even better. Um, um, don't we have some waveforms to check on? <laughs> you want to breathe for? A, you want to breathe for a few minutes? Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. You're turning red. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, the 2017 Waveform Theater Series presents special guest Eli Kurtz. Oh, them waveforms, pretty blue deer, and audacity's good to go. Just a podcast to record, babe, and our monitors all aglow. Oh my god, I'm so happy! (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Oh my god. Take that, P.K. Sullivan. Not gonna lie, earlier today I was like, do I want to come up with lyrics for the whole song and then just see when they want to cut me off? Maybe I do, but then I, I didn't. No, it's dangerous because we'll actually just let you keep it's going. Dangerous. That's the... Yeah, we will. We'll just sit here. Bloop. Beyond the village there stands a tall hedge to keep the Blackwood at bay. Kept safe from danger from pagans and elves if only we follow the way. 
The way of the elder king, narrow and true, a guide to law and to life. With aid from our ancestors overhead, we're saved from peril and strife. But there are those who falter, or those who choose to turn from fellowship and order, who want the realm to burn. But if you would stand against these trials, a life of errantry calls to walk the way's margin, to seek out its faults for self or for us all. See, and that is why you should back Blackwood, obviously. (laughs) Kickstarter. I'm totally now going to need a song for my future Kickstarter. (laughs) Well, hey, Uh, I know a guy. (laughs) Awesome, yeah. This one's for you, Emily. Totally talking about you. Hi, Emily. Bloop. (laughs) It's totally not fake, Emily. We have a guest. If it was fake, yeah, you wouldn't geez. have a guest on the podcast. We wouldn't have guests. That's right. Guests aren't on fake podcasts. I'm only, They're only on real podcasts. <laughs> I'm only half imaginary. <laughs> Which one of the two of us is imagining you? Bloop. Meow. Here we go. We'll take an attempt to get into the beginning of no, this. No, no, no. You didn't meow back. You have to meow back. Yeah. Point. Well, I was getting ready. Yeah. Okay. See? See? He was gone. Meow. Meow. No, we can't laugh after the meow because then it ruins the intro. <laughs> <laughs> now we have to do it again, everybody. Okay. Meow, meow, meow. Bloop. Do you want to talk about maps and games? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> say, but that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, Oh, poor Senda's not going to be able to breathe. This is where the music goes. Good. All right, catch your breath. You have to do some talky parts in a second. Damn it. Okay. You ready? No, I was going to interrupt you. I know. I caught you. I I interrupted your interrupt. Now it's like a game of magic. I've interrupted your interrupt interrupt with my counter spell. Yes. Well, now we have to back them all out one at a time until we find out what the actual spell effect is. Sorry. Just tripped out a little on some magic. (laughs) (laughs) Happens to the best of us. We're good. (laughs) Bloop. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Enough about mm-hmm. enough about Phil's tragic magic past. Okay. <laughs> tragic magic past. We got a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here. Maybe I should maybe I should jump back into the show. <laughs> maybe we should do the show again. We were so Jeez. close before the Ditch Lily reference. Came I know out. Oh, you cool. just that was totally my fault. Yeah, it was totally and utterly your fault. Totally and utterly my fault. And with that, I will bring us back around. Takes? Yeah, I don't believe you. I, I'm going to do it right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the thing. Ready? Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. Shh. Shh. Okay. <laughs> Damn it, Senda. You, do that. you did that intentionally. I While didn't. I was just about to start. You have no patience. I do have to say, though, <laughs> Wait till- in the exact moment of silence, I heard my fiance flush the toilet. It was brilliantly timed. <laughs> <laughs> The convergence of all of all sounds have occurred at the same time. All right, we're gonna try it again. Okay. Okay, but you know how to solve this problem. We just have to put in a small pause. Okay. 
The map is a diagrammatic representation of an area it's of land. It's a what? It's a what? Diagrammatic. It's, it's a diagram. Damn it. <laughs> Trip me up. All right, let's start it's again. A, it's a diagrammatic. <laughs> no, I was doing good and I stumbled over everything. So, <laughs> so Senda, this is the place in the show where we put the ad <laughs> the copy ad that where we I remember didn't put last week. To put the week. ad copy this time because the thing about this ad copy that's really cool is that people now have 24 hours left to back it. So they got to do it like now. Like so when they pull hustle. over, when they pull over to to um back Blackwood, they should just get their Cthulhu bags too. Oh bag man, Thulu. I saw bag those. Cthulhu. There we go. They're adorable and terrifying. M Y T H I C G A Z E T T E E R. There we go. Yeah, for a second, I actually thought you were spelling my Twitter handle. Rob Abuzado. Rob Abuzado. I love it. He's so cool. Hey, Rich. Yeah, you know, it's a thing. Rich, we I saw your Facebook post the last couple of days. We love you, man. Yeah, you got this. You got this. We love you. Show me what kind of maps you have in the Blackwood. Take heed, Philincenda, for here there be meddlesome elves. Show me what you got. Show me what you got. Show me what you got. All right. Bloop. Crazy. Oh my god, Phil! What? Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, see, now you all get to experience what I get to experience, except it's not my phone blowing up in the middle of a meeting. Oh, I should have saved it for in the middle of your work day. 